Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to First Timothy. I'm sorry, First Thessalonians, chapter five. First Thessalonians, chapter five. As you're turning to the place, I just want to mention that we have set aside the exposition in First Peter. Uh, we're coming into chapter 3, which is a new chapter. Uh, we have completed chapter 2. And I don't really want to start an exposition on the chapter and then have to stop again in light of the uh, Christmas uh, services. Uh, so just for a few weeks, uh, we'll have... Um, Tempted to call them miscellaneous messages, but no message from God would be miscellaneous, uh, sure it wouldn't. But we'll just have individual messages on things that the Lord has put upon my heart, as well as our exposition in First Peter. And then in the new year, we'll take up that um, exposition once again, and uh, we'll continue in First Peter uh, chapter uh, 3. But just for today, we're turning to First Thessalonians chapter 5. And I want to read from verse 14 to the end. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Comfort the feeble-minded, Support the weak. Be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man. But ever follow that which is good both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophesyings. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Amen. We pray God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. My text this morning is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and the verse 23. It reads as follows, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now my subject today is the counsel and comfort in light of Christ's coming. Now the overall theme of 1 Thessalonians, and especially the theme of this closing section in chapter 5, is the comfort and the counsel of the church in light of the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. The doctrine of Christ's second coming is an important doctrine in this chapter. God's people had many fears. They were anxious about the future. They had many unanswered questions. They lived in a sinful, hostile world. This was a day when God's people faced much opposition and persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. Many were perplexed, discouraged. If you bear in mind that they lived in a pagan society, yet they were striving to live for Jesus Christ, that they were in love with Christ, they were loyal to him, that they were steadfast in holding to the great fundamentals of the gospel, new converts, we could really say, living for the Saviour. And they stood in need of much encouragement and comfort. In fact, the word comfort is a much repeated word in the book. Chapter 2.11, chapter 3.2, chapter 4.18, chapter 5.11, and chapter 5.14. It's one of the key terms. Paul, writing this letter, was writing it not only to commend God's people for living for the Saviour in a hostile world, but to comfort God's people living for the Saviour in a hostile world. Real comfort isn't found in the world. It's not found in the philosophies of men or in the seminaries of men. Real comfort is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying when you face real trials and tears and no tribulation in the world, get your eyes on Jesus Christ and the gospel. Especially bear in mind the Lord's return. You see, the coming of Christ is also mentioned in this chapter. Chapter 1 verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 19, chapter 3, verse 13, chapter 4, verse 15, and chapter 5, 23. Every chapter mentions the word coming. And Paul is saying, in light of Christ's coming, I want you to be comforted and urge you to continue on living for Jesus Christ. You see, it's the thrust and theme of the book. And the doctrine of Christ's coming is a theme of real comfort for God's people. I believe that Jesus Christ is coming back. He said, I will come again. And we believe in the literal, tangible, visible, bodily, physical advent of Jesus Christ again to the Mount of Olives, where he ascended from. Won't you be glad when Jesus comes, the end of your trials, the end of your toils, the end of your tears, all temptations and troubles have ceased. We're to live in light of that day. Let me illustrate. Years ago when I was a faith Michigan pilgrim, 
uh, there was a man there in Larne Mission Hall who came to preach. He was a holiness preacher of the old school. Probably a rank Arminian, but he loved the Lord. He was called the Reverend Paul Finch. And I remember him saying that his father, who was also a preacher, got up every morning, pulled back the curtains of his bedroom, and said these words, Even so come Lord Jesus. And of course he was urging us back then, as faith mission pilgrims, that's the way to live. And you know he was right. Because that's exactly what Paul is doing here, saying to the people in Thessalonica. Let our work, let our worship, let our walk, let our ways be governed by this message, living in light of the Lord's return. Now there's three things I want to set before you as you think of that theme. Notice in verse 23 the expression of God's will for his people. The verse says, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Now now we'll stop there. I want you to look at the first word in the text. You children can read it in your Bible. You know what it is. It's the word and. And and in English is a joining word. And it joins up what has previously been said. Now, the God of peace, of course, that's a wonderful title all by itself. That's a sermon on its own. God wants his children and God wants his church, I believe, to be at peace. He doesn't want fights and fallouts in the church. He doesn't want discord and division. That's not his will. Now, of course, you're at liberty to disagree with me on anything that I say. I'm certainly not infallible i'm certainly not the pope or a pope-like figure in this church i'm just a a a saved sinner who's seeking to serve jesus christ but i want you to think when paul said and the very god of peace sanctify you holy what was in paul's mind as those words were penned and i'm putting it to you this morning this is what was in his mind the will of god Because if you look at the context, and this is what drew me to the passage, this is what started my mind. Verse 18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Here's a reference to the will of God. And I want you to ask yourself this morning, What is God's will for me? I believe one of the devices of the devil today is to suggest and argue to God's people it doesn't matter how you live. Now you're saved. You've got liberty in Christ to do as you please. Or, as I have heard people saying, you're under grace. You're not to be concerned about keeping the law of God or the Ten Commandments. And there are those, sadly, some who are preachers, have misused and abused the truth about eternal security. Once you're saved, you can live as you please. You can live like the devil. I remember a man in Coleraine, this is true, he said to me that he was saved 
And if he wanted to go out and get drunk, and if he wanted to gamble, and if he wanted to smoke and curse and run off with other women, he could do that as a Christian. And I'm saying this morning that you can't. Because you're not saved to do as you please. Look at verse 18 again. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Here's God's revealed will for the church at Thessalonica. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I'm emphasizing it. I want you to underline that in your Bible. You see, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 from verse 14 right through to 24, maybe even we could say to the end, is a revelation of God's will for our lives. Now, now hold that thought. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Come over in your Bible to chapter 4. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. You see, God's will is clear. And this is not just for the minister of the church. It's not just for those in positions of authority in the church like the office bearers. This is for every believer. This is for every Christian. God's will is revealed. God's will is clear. Now, now, now think with me. Look at verse 16. Here's God's will. Be joyful. Rejoice evermore. We're to rejoice in the grace and the goodness and the greatness of God to us in Christ. What's man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Paul's advice to those in Philippi was rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. That's despite your circumstances, despite your situation. We could literally say that this world is a veil of tears. It's full of trouble as sparks fly upward. And yet if we're saved, we're to rejoice in Christ. We're to rejoice that we're the children of God. We're, we're to rejoice that we're redeemed. We've got loads of privileges. We have many benefits. Like the psalmist, daily he has loaded us with benefits. Let's think of what we have in Christ. And let's think that one day we're going to be with Christ forevermore. At his coming. Or through the portal of death. Yes, these are dark days. Yes, these are difficult times. But we're to rejoice in the dark days. And we're to rejoice in the difficult times. Not only that, but we're to be prayerful. Look at verse 17. Pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Now, does that mean we're to pray 24-7? Constantly on our knees and never get off them? The answer is no. What it means is we're to live in the atmosphere of fellowship and communion with God we're not to neglect fellowship and communion with God we're certainly not to neglect private prayer we're not to neglect the corporate prayer meeting of the church it's interesting that Charles Haddon Spurgeon said 
that he did not pray for more than 15 minutes at a time. I know a man that prayed in church for an hour and 20 minutes at one time. And whenever he got up, there was nobody else there because everybody had left and gone home and left him to himself. Spurgeon said he didn't pray for more than 15 minutes at a time. But then he added that he didn't go 15 minutes at a time without prayer. In other words, he lived in the atmosphere of prayerful fellowship and communion with God. And and that's our vital breath, isn't it? Samuel said, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. And it's God's will that we pray. Pray for ourselves. Pray for our families. If you think of Paul's words in verse 25, brethren, pray for us. Paul in another said, pray for me. And it's right that you pray for the ministers of the church. It's right that we pray for one another. It's a sin if we don't pray. In fact, it's a contradiction. If you're a Christian born of the Spirit, the Spirit of God within you prompts you to pray. When thou prayest, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, not if. We're to be prayerful. That's God's will. Notice also, we're to be thankful. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And here's a question. Are we thankful? Are we thankful in our meal times? God gives us our food as a gift. Do we thank him for it? Do we think of him even as we partake of a mundane thing like eating and drinking? Or do we just rush in? Grab the knife and fork and stuff food into our mouth and try to have a conversation with those all around us. Are we thankful for the mercies of God? Isn't it one of the marks of the last days? Unthankful. First Timothy chapter 3. Do you know many times I've thought of preaching a whole sermon on, on the characteristics of the last days? Every one of those things, that's a sermon in itself. But we're to be thankful. That's God's will. Thank you, Lord, that I'm in a gospel-preaching church. I count it an honor and a privilege. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the first day that I heard the gospel. I thank you for every occasion for the Lord's day when I can go and meet with you and have a message from yourself. Notice also here, and I have to be quick, be mindful. Quench not the spirit. <coughs> Let's remember that if we're born again of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is resident within us. And of course it's God's will that we be filled with the Spirit. But bear in mind that all the strength and power to live out the Christian life comes from the Spirit of God who is resident within us. We have no power and strength of our own. When we try to, to stand up for Jesus Christ and speak for him, And we try to to supplicate in the arm of the flesh. We feel. And of course, quench not the spirit. We can cause the spirit of God to withdraw. We, We can vex and grieve the spirit of God. The spirit of God can be absent. It can be a dreadful thing. 
We're to be mindful of that. That's God's will. Quench not the spirit. Notice also we're to be faithful. Despise not prophesying. I believe primarily this is a reference to, to preaching. Don't despise the preaching of God's word. Neither in foretelling or foretelling. See, I, I, I have to be honest. I have some people that say to me, it doesn't matter if I attend the church or not, Sunday morning or Sunday evening. It doesn't even matter, preacher, if I pay attention or not in church. I want to say this morning, of course it matters. The Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. And you know, what we don't want is to become SMO, which is Sunday morning only. And how many of God's people even have laid off a Sabbath evening service? Why? Is it an indication of the true state of our hearts spiritually with God? I believe it's an indication of our spiritual temperature. If someone says, I can go to a house of God and listen to the gospel minister preach a message from God and I don't have to pay attention. I can be sitting there switched off, bored out of my skull, thinking about other things and you say to me, it doesn't matter. I just say to you, it does. Because God's will is despise, not prophesy. And it's an indication of where you're at in your heart. Notice also here, be truthful. It says, prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Literally, we're to test all things. We're to have a spirit of discernment. We're to ask ourselves, is this right for me? Is this lawful for me? Is this God's will for me? Let's remember, in all that we do, we're to bring honour and glory to the Lord. We should be asking ourselves, is this sinful? Remember the Bible says to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there's no light in them. And therefore there was a day when we need as God's people the spirit of discernment, then we need that today. And this is God's will. That's what I'm saying. Notice also here, we're to be holy. He says, abstain from all appearance of evil and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. You see, this is a call to strive to be holy. It's a call to be joyful. It's a call to be prayerful. It's a call to be thankful. It's a call to be mindful. It's a call to be faithful. It's a call to be truthful. But it's also a call to be holy. This is God's will for his church. <coughs> This is a matter for every Christian to take on board. Folks, this is not a, a worthless command. This is not a useless exhortation. This is God's will as well. We're not to say I'm saved and I can live as a place. Because we're saved, we want to live holy lives why? Because this is God's will. And isn't it interesting that twice, two times, 
this same theme emerges. And this is the will of God for you, even your sanctification. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. In the context of mentioning the will of God for the church. This is the expressed will of God. And you're saying to me, but you're laboring that. And I know that. Because I I want you to remember it. I want you to, to get it into your mind this morning. It's not God's will that we're careless. About spiritual things. And isn't there a carelessness about spiritual things today among the professing people of God? We need to be honest. It's not God's will that we are carnal about spiritual things or cold. And it's not God's will that we're corrupt about spiritual things either. You see, For many today, the issue is this. Should I do this? Or should I do that? Let me try and illustrate. Should I marry an unsaved person? I'm a Christian. I've asked Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Saviour. And I'm going out with somebody who has no interest in God. Jesus Christ to the church. And I'm in a quandary. What should I do? And I'll come across people, and you know what they've said? I'm praying about it, Reverend McLaughlin. And I've said to them, there's no need to pray. It's a good thing to pray, but there's no need to pray about this. Because it's not God's will. Or should I go to the prayer meeting? I'll pray about that. Or should I remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? I'll pray about that. Or should I engage in some sort of sinful activity? Should I hanker after the world? You see, there's no need to pray about those things. Now it's good that we pray for strength and help and guidance. But God's will is clear. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here. It's God's will that you Thessalonians live a sanctified life. It's God's will that you're joyful and prayerful and thankful and mindful and faithful and truthful. But it's God's will that you're holy. Now what does that mean? I'm going to labour this point a wee bit and then we're going to finish and I'll I'll come back to this sermon at, at a different time. Think of the words and the very God of peace sanctify you holy. I want to point out it's nothing to do with sinless perfection. There's no such thing as a Christian being sinlessly perfect this side of heaven. It has nothing to do with reaching a point where sin is totally eradicated. You see, there are some preachers and people who name the name of Christ who point to this text And say, well, there's a message on sinless perfection. They might call it differently. They could call it a clean heart. They might even say, well, this ties into full salvation. Or they might use the biblical term, sanctify you wholly. And I want to say, if you tie in the words, the God of peace, 
There are people who have split from fellowship with other people over this particular doctrine. And sparks have flown. And people, I could think of one young man years ago with me who had a nervous breakdown because he was told that he could reach a point where he was sinless. And he was striving for that. Oh, I would like to reach that stage. Never sin in thought and word and deed. And I tried to talk to him. I tried to tell him, you need to get that out of your head, boy. Because there's no such teaching in the word of God. But he convinced it was. And you know, he had to leave the Bible college. <coughs> he had to go into a, an institution for a little time. And today that young man who was very bright, that young man's nowhere with God. And there are those, of course, who are guilty of snobbery. Spiritual snobbery. And they've got their nose up in the air. I'm better than you because I'm holier than you. And I want to tell you, and I say lovingly from the pulpit, that is not the meaning of these words. Now we're clear in that. It has nothing to do, young people, with sinless perfection. Now what does it mean now? It means to strive to be holy. Strive to be like Christ. Strive to live a holy life. In your worship, in your walk, in your words, in your ways. Because you're loving Jesus Christ, given that you're genuinely and truly saved. You want to live for Jesus Christ. And therefore, you strive to be holy. It's about being 100% consecrated to God. The Bible teaches sin shall not have dominion over you. In other words, sin will not control you. We all still sin. We all still far, fall far short. We, we all still do and say things that are wrong. And remember, that drives us to look to Christ continually. And the blood of Christ cleanseth us from all sin. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist prince of preachers, he had a man visiting one time. And this man, he, he had this notion that uh, sin had been eradicated from him. And he reached the point where he hadn't sinned in a long time. And I think he used the term <coughs> 20 years. This is a story that's told uh, by Spurgeon. And uh, he said that at the breakfast table, having listened to this man the night before, whenever they were eating the porridge, he, he deliberately, but sort of accidentally, you know, like an Ulsterism, uh, spilt some of the porridge in this man. And the man lost his temper. And Spurgeon laughed and says, ha ha, you, you've just committed your first sin in 20 years. You, you see, if I could put it a different way, uh, another preacher, a man by the name of Reverend Johnson Edwards, and he used to pray, and I quote his prayer, Lord, Make me as holy as it's possible for a saved sinner to be. And that's what we aim for. 
Let, let me just quote in closing our shorter catechism, really forming part of my second point, but I, I'll come back to this. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die under sin and live under righteousness. Note, it's a work of God's free grace. It proceeds from God's undeserved goodness. And making a person holy is a work. It's not all at once. It is gradual and progressive. There is such a thing as progressive sanctification. And it's a work wrought within us from the first to last by the Holy Spirit of God. And it consists in our being made like to God. Gradually learning to um, hate sin. Gradually learning to cease from it, to stop it. And gradually learning to love and practice right living and holiness. Remember Jesus Christ, he hated sin and he loved righteousness. It's called a renewing because it restores us to the state in which we were first in Adam. And we're restored in that state in Christ. And it's an integral part of God's salvation. So often we're full of resolve. And yet the resolve falls and fades by the wayside. So often we're full of regret because we look to our past and we're filled with failure and we get discouraged and we want to quit. And how many of God's people when it comes to personal holiness feel a failure this morning? And yet we're full of responsibility. And we say, but this is God's will for me. How is this possible? I, I could never have this. Do you know we need the Lord? And look at verse 24. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. In other words, it is God that worketh in you, both to do of his good pleasure. We've got a responsibility. Yet we need the Lord. Because we'll never be holy and love sin and hate righteousness by our own unaided effort and ability. God's work is to instill holiness within us. And this is a real experience for us as the child of God. And that's God's will. I'm going to stop there. Our time is gone. But I trust that this will open up this text. We're only scratching the surface now. We're only coming to the heart of the message. But I want you to bear in mind this is an expression of God's will for me. And this is a real experience wrought by the Holy Spirit. May the Lord take these few words and bless them to our hearts today.